Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, you are so good, undeniably good. And we give you all the glory, praise, and honor that's due your name. Lord, I thank you for the gathering together of the saints this morning. I know that it's precious in your eyes. I pray that what we, would, we do here today would be pleasing to you, Lord. And now as we continue the worship, getting into your word, I pray that your word would get into us by the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would impart these truths to our heart and our mind, that you would literally transform us and make us more like you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, before you sit down, can you say hello to a couple people? Okay, well, if you have your Bibles this morning, please take them out and turn to the book of Luke, chapter 5. And if you need a Bible, there should be Bibles underneath the seats. And I have a few announcements while you're turning there and getting situated in the book of Luke chapter 5. Uh, Wednesday night, we are going to cover Romans chapter 9 and 10, if you want to read ahead for that. And next week, we are having Father's Day. And the reason I say that is because we're going to have Hawaiian shirt and or Hawaiian print day. So that's for anybody who wants to do it. And if you don't want to do it, that's fine. But uh, Hawaiian dresses, Hawaiian shirts. Um, just look at Uncle Charlie and you'll know <laughs> what to wear. That's what you want to be thinking about there. So that's next week. There's a women's retreat September 7th through 9th. There's sign-ups for that. Men's retreat September 30th through October 1st. There's sign-ups for that. The sign-ups are out in the foyer there. And that's it. So I'm sure and hope that you're all in your Bibles in the book of Luke chapter 5. We're going to cover the section from verses 33 through 39. And I'd like to read that with you. And then we're going to get into it a little more closely. Luke 5:33. Then they said to him, Why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers, and likewise those of the Pharisees, but yours... They eat and drink. And he said to them, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away. Then they will fast in those days. And then he spoke a parable to them. And he said, No one puts a piece from a new garment on an old one. Otherwise, the new makes a tear, and also the piece that was taken out of the new does not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine will burst the wineskin and be spoiled with or spilled with the wineskins that will be ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins, and both 
are preserved. And no one having drunk old wine immediately desires new, for he says the old is better. So what's going on there? And why is Jesus using these particular analogies to help under, or help explain a particular truth that he wants them to understand? And in reality, what he's doing is he's explaining the gospel to them. He's wanting them to know and understand that what he's bringing to them, this teaching, this demonstration of his teaching through the miracles, what they're witnessing through their proclamations of the fact that he's teaching with authority and and what he is saying is different than what they're used, used to. And the reason they were saying that is because when Jesus was teaching, he was teaching as the original source of truth. He wasn't quoting someone or he wasn't as a prophet speaking for God. He was speaking as God directly to them. And they noticed that, the, the Jews in particular, but not only the Jews, is the Gentiles, the non-Jews. There was something different in every way about Jesus. And what they were trying to understand was this truth that he was bringing because it was undeniable how clearly he was different from anybody else that they have ever heard or seen. And as he's bringing forth this truth, he's talking about the gospel, the pure, unadulterated truth of God, which says and explains how someone gets saved, how we get to heaven, how someone can have their sins forgiven, how someone can know the truth that sets them free. And so as he goes through this section of Scripture, he's explaining the gospel, but what he does, and in the way of application, specifically, and then as we broaden that out a little bit, it really falls on the hearer. It falls on those who are recipients of his ministry, of his teaching preaching ministry, of the miracles ministry, and what those individuals, and I I point that out, individuals, because it's important, because every individual must make that decision themselves, regardless of those around them. It's an individual thing. It's not a group thing. And so he's pressing these points home in every different way to try to get them and us to understand the gospel, which means good news, eulengelion, the Greek word, which just means a proclamation of this great news that he is bringing to the world. And in particular, then, he talks about the willingness of those who hear these words, the willingness that is necessary for one who hears the word to respond to the word, the willingness to cooperate with God, the willingness to walk with God, the one who encounters this truth, their hearts will always be uh, examined. When one is confronted with the truth, and the, the truth is what we find in our Bibles, the truth is what sets people free, the truth is absolute, the truth is not 
conditioned upon what we think about it or what our truth is. Our truth doesn't matter because there's one truth that sets people free and we find that here in the Word of God. And so the particular or this one particular group, the Pharisees, who were religious workers of traditions outside of or much in addition to the Word of God. They were then put on trial as they were confronted with Jesus. So the Pharisees would know the Scriptures, quote-unquote, better than anybody, at least in their heads. They were experts in the, the Scriptures. They were theologians in the Scriptures. And when we're, when we're talking Scriptures, we're talking about the Old Testament Scriptures. So they believed a Messiah would come. And when the Messiah came, they were confronted with the truth of what was in their hearts. And that's really what happens is when we're confronted with the truth. And that's why at our church, that's why we teach the Bible. That's why at our church, we don't teach from the Bible. We teach the Bible. That's a diff there's a difference. And the reason is, is because... The Bible says it's the truth that sets people free. You shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And the truth is found here. And so we have this confidence that as we teach the Bible, that the truth will go out. But when the truth goes out, then what happens is there's a responsibility on the hearer of what they're going to do with that. And the Pharisees would hear what Jesus said, they would see how he fulfilled those Old Testament scriptures about a Messiah coming, and yet their hearts were really exposed that they were not truly desiring the truth because they had gotten so accustomed to their own way of life that they're inflexible to receive the truth when it hit them right between the eyes. So the question is, and this, this goes for everybody here today, how willing are we, one, to receive the free gift of God to salvation? And if you have done that, then the second question is, how willing are you to follow Jesus according to his word and not according to your own dictates or your own way that you want to follow him. So we start off in verse 33 with a, really an examination. And I, I think it's, it's fair to say that examination is good. Examining what Jesus is saying, examining the truth is good. We're called to be Bereans, meaning we're called to be those who, who take in what someone might say, and then we look at Scripture to see if it's true or not. And so we never ask anyone here to believe what I say or what anybody else says. We encourage you to look at the Word of God and see how what is said matches with the Word of God. That's why it's so important, and we believe, especially 
as we move forward in society and the way things are going in society that, that we look to what the truth is. The frightening or alarming thing is when someone is confronted with the truth but they're unwilling to yield to that. That's what we see here. But watch what happens in verse 33. There's, there's an examination. So th- this is... This is good. This is good to start off. It's good to examine. So here's the examination, verse uh, 33. They, then they, who's they? The they is the disciples of John the Baptist, actually, and the Pharisees, two groups of people. So they say to Jesus, and here's the question: Why do the disciples of John fast often? And make prayers. And likewise, those of the Pharisees. So right off the bat, that that sounds good, right? So they're saying, Jesus, your guys that are following you, they're not fasting like we do. And they're, they're not praying like we do. So what are they suggesting? What are they saying? Particularly, there, there is a, a framework that they're working in, a system, if you will. The system that had been developed by the Pharisees of fasting and praying, and then not mentioned here, but also added on to that would be alms or giving and helping the poor. So that system, those three things, the Pharisees in particular, developed a system to where fasting, meaning abstaining from food or drink for a period of time, and then praying and then giving alms would be a way that they would sort of get credit for how good they are. So they developed a system that had grown past what the Bible said. What did the Bible say? The Bible commanded a fasting one time a year for the Jews on the Day of Atonement. And it was from sunset or sun up to sundown. So not too bad. And that was it. And the, the purpose of that would sort of de- to be to really um, examine one's heart, to show humility, to sort of grieve over their sin. So it was a pretty dark, negative thing, if you will. But it was commanded, and, and so that was good. And by abstaining from food, it would, it would help them focus on the things of God and the spiritual things, as they uh, abstain from the physical things. So the Pharisees then would take that and say, hey, if, if that's good, then let's do more than that. So they would fast two days a week, And they would do it, what's interesting, they would do it on Mondays and Thursdays. Why was that interesting? They would pick Mondays and Thursdays. Those were the busiest days in the marketplace, Mondays and Thursdays. And those are the days where they would fast. And their fasting, unlike what the Bible says, and Jesus commented on this in Matthew chapter 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, but their fasting was to show everybody else how spiritual they were. 
So they would make themselves look terrible. And they would go out in the most busy place, busiest places at the most busiest times, and they would go out and they would look terrible. So everybody would look at them and say, Wow, what happened to Jan? If that's your name, I'm not talking about you. She didn't put makeup on today. She, her hair's messed up. She looks all messed up. But they would say, wow, she must be fasting. Look how spiritual she is. But I'm, I should use a male's name because it's mainly the, the Pharisees that did that. So what about Jim? And that's not referring to anybody in particular. How about Charlie? Let's say Charlie. Say Charlie was going out and he'd go into the marketplace. And he had, wouldn't shave and he, he, he would have dark circles under his eyes and he, he'd go and he'd walk around and everybody would say, wow, look how spiritual he is. And that, that would make them feel very spiritual, but it would make other people feel, wow, I'm not as spiritual as that person. And they made a system by doing that. But then their prayers were systematized too. So they would have prayer times at 12, 3, and 6. 12 p.m., 3 p.m., 6 p.m. And, and sort of like Muslims do today, everything would stop and everything would be focused on these prayers. But it would be all done to be seen. And it would be all done to be an example to other people of what they would suppose righteousness looks like. This is what righteousness looks like. It looks like this Pharisee in the marketplace. And it says even John the Baptist's disciple. So John the Baptist, his ministry was to sort of hand off the baton to Jesus, to point the way to Jesus. But his ministry was calling people to repentance and getting people prepared for the ministry of Jesus. But he was very much into the discipline of disciplining his body and doing these things. The, the outfit he wore would be very uncomfortable to, to just afflict his flesh type of thing. And there were those who followed him who didn't transition to following Jesus, but they kept following that way of life because there's an appeal to all of that. So that's why you have the disciples of John, the disciple or the, the Pharisees, the disciples of the Pharisees, they're, they're asking, well, how come your disciples are not doing what we're seeing being done, but really the opposite? What, what your disciples are doing, they're, they're actually eating and drinking, and they're not fasting and praying. So that's the, the examination, and, and this is what happens when someone be, begins to come closer to the truth, where they're sort of understanding some things about God and, and they start to go through this thing where they're realizing there's some differences. Uh, maybe some people are sort of, they look at your life and they say, how come this person doesn't do this? Or how come they do that? You know, just coming to church on a, a Sunday. How come people, how come they do that? You know, that kind of questioning. But this is what was going on. So this is good, really examining and coming closer to the truth, starting to ask questions. Um, why is Jesus doing something different than I'm used to? And when you get closer to Jesus, that's what happens. You start to recognize the differences. 
you start to recognize maybe even the polar opposites. Because the Bible says you can't serve two masters. So what Jesus is always trying to do is make it really clear that there's no in-between. And that area of in-between is very dangerous because it's actually something Jesus says is there is no in-between. You're either for me or against me. And to hang around this middle area, this gray area, even with the idea or the thought that I'm, I'm okay and I'm good, I'm spiritual, I said a prayer, I walked an aisle, and, and just to have some sort of mental acknowledgement or understanding of God and, and think, okay, I'm, I'm good. I got my life insurance policy. Now leave me alone. Jesus, he deals with that over and over again because he wants us to know. He, he even tells us there, there, there are people that will stand before God one day and they'll recite all the things that they've done for God and he'll actually say to them, depart from me. I never what? I never knew you. So you see all through the Gospels and, and his ministry is so radical but because he's calling people to make a decision, a, a decision that you're fully in or you're not in at all. It's one or the other. And this examination process is, is good and I encourage any non-believer any seeker to truly investigate and don't believe snippets of TikTok and Snapchat and little quotes you see, but really find out what the truth is. How do you do that? Well, find out what the Bible says first and then see if that is a reality because it really comes down to a matter of seeking what the truth is. And if you are a seeker of the truth and any true believer would not be afraid of anybody investigating and examining to try to find the truth. I welcome that. But the, the question is, are you really doing that? Or have you really got a system that you already have and then you just kind of want to sprinkle a little Jesus into that system? Jesus is denouncing that very idea. You don't sprinkle Jesus in to your same life that you're, you're living. It's not like that. It's completely different. You might say it's completely opposite. There's two masters, he says. You can't serve both. He actually says you'll either love the one and hate the other or vice versa. So it's a love thing. So when one comes to Christ and they come out of the world, what happens is you have a different view of the world and you hate the world. And you hate the world because you see what, see what it's for and you love Christ now. But this lingering in the middle is what Jesus often deals with. So as they're examining this, it's, it's sort of on the, on the heels of two things that happened prior to this. One is, you may recall, and also in this chapter, that Jesus said that he could forgive sins. So that really messed 
religious people up because they said only God can forgive sins. Exactly. That's what Jesus was trying to say. Exactly. And then Jesus was hanging out with tax collectors. So that was the second thing because the thought of the day is how could religious people even get near or touch unreligious people? And Jesus did. And then he says this statement, if you'll read and look with me in verse 29 of the previous chapter, I'm sorry, the previous section, verse 29, it says, Levi, a.k.a. Matthew, the writer of the gospel and the disciple, Matthew, he gave him, Jesus, a great feast in his own home. And there was a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with him. And remember, tax collectors were seen by the society, especially the Jews, as the lowest of low, the worst of the worst. And in verse 30, it says, And their scribes, or the religious people, and the Pharisees, they complained against his disciples, just like they're doing in in our text. They complained, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And here's Jesus' answer. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so we transition from that into what we're talking about here today, and that's important because they go together sequentially. Because what Jesus is saying is, all are sinners, but not all are willing to admit that they are sinners to the extent that they will actually come to Jesus. And for those who say, I don't need Jesus, I'm good, maybe you cite, I have this or I have that, maybe I have this religious practice or this religious thing I did at a certain time, then what you're saying is, I don't need forgiveness of my sins. And so Jesus is pointing out that he has come for everyone, and it is those who come to him, they recognize their true condition as sinful people who are in need of a God to save them. And so they're questioning, they're examining, what is this, what is he talking about? Our, Our religious system makes us righteous look the people when we go out and we pray and we fast and they tell us how righteous we are they they look at us and tell us how holy we are and we look at them and point at them and tell them how unholy they are so what are you talking about so here's his explanation in verse 34 so he says he's using an illustration Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? So now he goes, I want you guys to think of something. You you understand, he's, he's telling them, you understand that there are occasions where there is a certain amount of appropriateness for the occasion. Right? So if you go to a birthday party, You should not go to the birthday party and wear all black and have a somber face 
and be negative. And look at everybody and say, why are you celebrating? Why are you so happy? What are you doing? You should, that's not appropriate. This is what Jesus is saying. Fasting is not appropriate right now. Why? Fasting is for a time of mourning, grieving, humbling oneself, and focusing on God. The Pharisees would be anxious and wait and talk about and celebrate through their feasts the fact that the Messiah is going to come one day. And when the Messiah comes, this is going to be a great day. This is going to be amazing. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. And they look for that. They long for that. And Jesus is telling them, that day is here. I am here. This is not a time to mourn. Me being here is the answer to all your prayers. It's not appropriate to fast now. It's appropriate to drink and eat because that's what you do when you celebrate. It's a time of joy. This is a time of amazing gladness. I'm here. And a Jewish mind would be thinking, mainly incorrectly, if most, most of the Jews thought this way, that Jesus was coming to earth at this time to set up his kingdom. And that would be so amazing for them. They were under great oppression from the Roman Empire. They couldn't exercise to the fullest degree their religion and their faith. And everything was just so oppressed and they're miserable and under the threat of violence constantly and misstepping and going over. And they thought, well, Messiah comes, he's going to reign on earth. What they didn't understand is that the Messiah was gonna, going to do first something even way better, much better than reigning on earth. He was going to reign in man's hearts. He was not going to just defeat the enemy of the Roman Empire. He was going to defeat the enemy of sin and death. And so he's saying... I'm here now to free you from sin and death, from the bondage of sin that has power over your life and to grant you entrance into the kingdom of heaven, my kingdom. It's time to celebrate. It's time to rejoice. And, and he was saying there would be a time when, when something happens where you would be Fasting, and I believe particularly that was talking about the time from his arrest and his crucifixion. That would be the time of fasting. That would be the time of praying. But then there would be a time of resurrection, the time we're living in now. And that would be a time of joy and celebration again because he is victorious. He has given us true good news and true hope. He is risen. And so every believer now lives in a time where we have the ultimate celebration every day, all day, because Christ lives in us. And Satan is a defeated foe. 
So you may ask yourself, well, why do we fast then? Should a Christian fast? And the answer is yes, and it's for intimacy with God and to help us to focus on God. So there is a place for that. But don't misunderstand that as this question goes out, the explanation is so amazing and the reference to Jesus being the bridegroom. What does that mean? So it's, a, 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 it's like the groom in a, a wedding, the imagery. And think about when one gets married, the role of the husband to protect, to provide, to care for lovingly, tenderly, to share all that he has with the bride, That's why this imagery is being used. They would get that. They would understand that. He's saying that the bridegroom is here. The one in whom maybe is not going to conquer Rome right now, but the one who's going to conquer so much more. And so it's a time and it's appropriate to celebrate that. And his disciples, you can imagine them in the back saying, yeah, this is awesome. Where's the fatted calf? Where's 407 barbecue? Where's the brisket? This is awesome. So first we have to understand that as we examine the truths of God, the explanation then is all found in Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ. And when one comes to experience the relationship of Jesus Christ. They have been set free, and it is the greatest cause for celebration in a human being's life. And that celebration doesn't end, but the celebration continues on into eternity. So that's the life of a believer. So in verse 35, he says, But the days will come. That's a sad sad overtone here, the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. That word taken away just means to be snatched or removed. So this is referring to when Jesus will be taken. This is where what is being said here is rejected by these people to the extent to where, remember I said there's no middle ground? They actually want to get rid of him. They can't coexist with what he is saying. And so it's either they accept him and receive what he's saying, or they get rid of him. And so this is interesting because in Luke, it's the first sort of hint that Jesus is going to be taken away. He's going to be killed And in those days, you'll fast. So that'll be a time to say, look, what's going on here is a a time where we should be grieving and mourning. They're taking our Messiah away. They're arresting him. They're crucifying him. But then look at the final section here. And he takes this analogy even further and looking at three more different analogies to try to explain the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he does it first by using an analogy of a new patch on an old garment. 
And so he says in verse 36, he says, Then he spoke a parable to them. And he says, No one puts a piece from a new garment on an old one. So that may be hard to understand in our day and age because ripped and torn clothing come at a higher premium. So those things are more valuable in our society. So torn things are good. But just for the sake of understanding the text, just think torn and ripped clothes are not good. In their day, it wasn't good. So he's saying, well, here's the problem with the way you're thinking what you're doing. You're, you're thinking if you, you have a rip, say, in your... Jeans, no, they didn't have jeans like we did, but just for the sake of argument, if they had a rip, what they would do is get a piece of cloth and say the jeans were old, and they'd get a new piece of Levi material, and they'd put it on that tear. Well, what would happen is the new patch or the new material would shrink and ruin what you were putting the patch on. So it wouldn't work. And they would know that. They would know that's not a good thing to patch up an old garment with a, a new patch or, and a new material. It's funny, just it, all this got me thinking about tough skins. Does anybody wear tough skins? I see a, a hand there. A few nods. Some people don't want to admit it. But when I was growing up, they had pants that had patches on it in the knees and places and they were called tough skins so you wore those and you thought you're really tough because you wore tough skins but I don't know just reminded me of of that for some reason but that analogy look what he's look what he says otherwise the new makes a tear and also the piece that was taken out of the new It does not match the old. So here's what Jesus is doing. He's using an illustration to try to get them to understand, to try to get us to understand that what he was doing was not trying to reform Judaism. He was not trying to patch it up or make it better. And this is where it gets really good. When Jesus came... He brought a brand new thing. And it didn't fit in any old pattern that was available. He brought a a brand new thing. And the thing that he brought, the brand new thing, was different than the other things because the new things that he brought, or the new thing, would mean that they would move from a works-based righteousness or a thought of I have to do good and be good to merit God's favor. And he brought a new system that went away from that that said that I'm the good one and you're not. And because I'm the good one, I will do what you could not do. And I will live the perfect life which he did. 
And I will take your place in judgment as he did on the cross. And I will make available at no cost to you. And not because of anything inherently within you that's good. But simply because your faith in me as you put your faith in me, as you transfer your faith in me, I will do a brand new thing in your life. And this is, this is where it gets really good. It means that no matter what we've done, no matter where we've been, it means that he will do a new thing. He will give us new life. We will know the truth and the truth will set us free. He will change us from the inside he will transform us. He will make us new to the extent where we will love God. We'll have a desire in us to follow God. Where we will enjoy being in a relationship with the creator of everything, including ourselves. And he's, he's telling them that I'm, I've come to do that. I've come and you're going to see me in a little bit the the crucifixion, my willingness to suffer and die on your behalf so you can have freedom in Christ and your sins can be forgiven and, and you can have a relationship with me. And then he uses another example in verse 37. He says, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. So that analogy, what's that all about? So a wineskin would be a, a leather or animal skin material. Sort of like if you ever had a Boda bag. This, these little bags that you can strap around and they'd be an animal hide material and you can put liquid in there and drink from them. Those would, after time, those containers would get hard and would not be elastic. However, when you were to put new wine into one of those, what happens to new wine? There's a process called what? Starts with a F. Fermentation. So to make wine, you get grape juice and it ferments. And what happens when something ferments? It expands. So I don't know, have you ever opened a soda can that was shaken up? similar to what this is saying. I way too often, I like my drinks really cold and I put them in the freezer a lot and I forget them a lot. And so we have a lot of that going on. Same sort of thing. Again, don't miss what he's trying to say. He's trying to say that you cannot put new wine in old wine skins. That what Jesus is saying is what I'm bringing, you can't fit into your pre-existing condition. Whatever that may be, specifically he's talking about Judaism and works-based righteousness and traditions and legalism and all this heavy religion that was burden, burdensome on people. And what he's saying is, I'm bringing a whole new thing that doesn't fit in that thing. You can't mix the two. You can't mix a works-based righteousness with 
a grace-based righteousness. It's either one or the other. It's either we work to be accepted by God or we receive God's grace to be accepted by God. So he says, or else the new wine bursts the wineskins and it spills and the wineskins will be ruined. But new wine, that's what Jesus was bringing. He was bringing grace. He was bringing unmerited favor with God. This new wine must be put in a new container. And then when that happens, both are preserved. Again, emphasizing the fact that the reception of the gospel, the reception of Christ, the receiving of the good news of Jesus Christ must come through one's willingness to accept what he says and not mix in our old life or our old lifestyle. That lingering mixture of in-between. He's saying that's going to burst. It won't work. It has to be one or the other. And then he uses this final analogy in verse 39. And he says, no one having drunk old wine, immediately desires the new. You know what that means? That means that naturally you and I and everybody who hears the gospel, there's going to be a little bit of a battle. Why? Because... What Jesus brings, his good news, the truth, life in Christ, it goes against naturally the way we think and the way we do things. So do you see the problem of trying to continue to do the same things in the same way and then sprinkle a little gospel or add a little Jesus into that, it doesn't work. In the section preceding this that we looked at a little bit before, Jesus called Matthew. And what did Matthew do? He left all to follow him. And he's touching on something so huge, so important. And it's easy to miss that when we come to Christ, simply to the cross we cling, nothing in our hands we bring. Many people make this mistake. I have made this mistake before I realized what was necessary to come to Christ. I wanted to be saved, but I, I wanted to keep my life, and I didn't want to follow Jesus, but I wanted to be saved, and I didn't realize that there's, that's not a thing. That's not an issue. You're either saved or you're not saved. And the, the comfortableness, like he's saying, of old wine. And he's using this analogy to, to somebody that they have their favorite wine. And what if someone came and said, hey, you have your favorite wine, but I have one that's even better, much better, 
You're going to like it better. It's going to do more for you. It's going to be the best thing that you ever experience. And you say, no, I, I just like my old wine. What is that? It's because we get comfortable. You might want to say we get in a rut. We all have our routines. And the older you get, the more settled into your routines that you get. And so it, it takes something usually pretty radical to shake someone up and to shake their routine up, especially as they get older, to say, hey, look, what you're doing is not working. And even worse, if you're somewhat successful in this world and you don't have the felt need that you should have before God, and then one just continues that life and that life of comfortability and the life of familiar and the life of this is just the way I do this. And it's very difficult for people that are entrenched in religious systems and they're counting on a religious system to get them to heaven. It's really hard to overcome that. And Jesus is pointing this out here. But notice something he says. Verse 39, no one having drunk the old wine, having have a, a tradition or a ritual or a routine, having gotten comfortable in life, whatever it may be, immediately, that word's key, immediately desires the new. So it's, it's common not to immediately respond to the gospel. It's common to not immediately love the word of God. It's common to come into a church like this and, and go and work through the scriptures like this and not immediately be into it. Not immediately be praising the Lord and loving praise songs. That's normal, but it doesn't mean that's going to end up being that way. Many of you were not comfortable even stepping foot in a church at some point in your life. Many of you were not comfortable with the Bible and with the gospel and with the people of God. And you might have even said to yourself, I don't want to be a Christian because I don't want to be like those people. And here you are. See, we become transformed when we come to Christ. And when we do, He begins to mold and shape our life. And as He molds it and shapes it, we begin to love the things of God. We begin to crave the things of God. And so Jesus, I, I see, just see how uh, merciful this is. That he's recognizing that, look, you're used to something that has been going on specifically the Pharisees, but even for us, we may just be so used to the way we live our life and, like I said, sprinkling Jesus in and, and wanting maybe traditional values or things like that, but we're still neglecting the whole spiritual aspect of the inner transformation of the inner man, and that's what it means to be a Christian. It's, we, we can even fall into the trap of the Pharisees by, by saying, well, my... I live according to these Christian values, but those Christian values are just a code or a system we're living by instead of a personal relationship that we have with God where we're worshiping Him in spirit and in truth. May I say that He's our everything. 
can sum it up like that. He's our everything. And so I want to finish with this one scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And feel free to turn there, but you don't have to. I just, for the sake of time, I'm, I'm, I have to get this in. 2 Corinthians 4, 3. says this. So we're talking about the gospel, right? We're talking about the truth. We're talking about how to have a relationship with God, how to go to heaven, how to have our sins forgiven. We're talking about all all of those things. And it all comes down to the gospel, which is the message or the word of God that we are saved by grace through faith. And that inside transformation that takes place in a person's heart. It's not an outside or outward code or standard that we live by, but it's a transformation on the inside. But listen to this. This is heavy. But even if our gospel is veiled, meaning if you're you're not able to see the goodness of the good news, if, say, what we're talking about this morning hasn't resonated with you or you're feeling a pushback or you're feeling like it's encroaching too much on your life and how you want to live your life, it means it's covered up or veiled. And then it says, it is veiled to those who are perishing. So that's why this gets really heavy. So if someone resists the gospel, and when I say gospel, we have to factor in what I said, that a willingness to leave everything to follow Jesus. A willingness to accept Him by faith for the forgiveness of sins. An unwillingness to do that, it means it's covered up, that we're not seeing it. And it actually says that that person right now, not at a future time, but right now is perishing. That's heavy. But watch this. Whose minds the God of this age has blinded who do not believe. So that's why. You you remember we're saying there's one or the other? To not believe is to receive and accept the lies of the world and the enemy and one in power in this world. And the one in power, Satan, in this world, he will blind your eyes if you don't believe. But get this. This is is really something that is stunning. It says, lest... The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is in the image of God, should shine on them. You know what that means? Believing is seeing. Have you ever heard of if seeing is believing? It's, it's not that way. Believing. And taking a step of faith to trust Jesus and saying, Jesus, 
I believe is to see and to receive and to know the truth of the gospel. And so Paul is pointing out that, that how we can receive this gospel and not mix it with other things is to simply believe there are two truths. One is really a lie. It's a fake truth. And the other is a truth. This is what Paul is saying here. One is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The other is believe in yourself. Believe in what the world tells you. Believe in the culture. Believe in society. In any one of those false beliefs, you can just look back in, in history and see how every one of them have failed. And yet, the Word of God stands forever. And so as we finish today and we talk about this new wineskin, the, the bottom line is, how willing are we today, this morning, to receive Jesus and to walk with Him? All the evidence is there. Everything's been laid out. Examine if you need to, but it always leads you back to Jesus. At the end of the day, it's all about Jesus. He loves you, He died for you, and He's calling you to follow Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this morning. We thank You for Your Word. And I, I pray, Lord, that Your Word would not return void or empty. And Lord, just as we finish up here, I pray uh, first and foremost for anybody today that would be willing to receive now, your offer of forgiveness to receive your gospel. Anybody here who would say, Lord, please forgive me. I've sinned. I'm a sinner. Please change me from inside out. Now is the time you can do that. Just cry out to him and say, Lord Jesus, please forgive me. Please come into my life and change me. And I want to just pray for anybody also here today who's trusting in anything other than Jesus Christ for their salvation or anybody who has a system of life that they live by that they're unwilling to leave to follow Jesus. May today you surrender and be willing to lay down your life to follow Jesus. We pray this, Lord, and we ask this, that you would move within our church body, that you'd move on hearts to the point, the point where we'd be willing to respond to the things that you've laid out for us in your word, Lord. Let's all stand. We're going to worship the Lord now. And as we sing this last song, let's just worship from our hearts to the Lord. If anybody is here and would like prayer about anything, uh, as we sing this last song, just feel free to come on up. There'll be uh, our prayer team up here to pray with you. And um, the rest of us, let's just worship the Lord and let's just thank the Lord for how good He is and what He's doing. Let's worship the Lord.